It's the Ambiguously Blind Podcast with your host, a guy that's great up hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, 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 greetings. Welcome back to the Ambiguously Blind Studio. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast experience. In this episode, we are going to be joined by Chad Foster. Chad is an extraordinary guy who's done some pretty extraordinary things in his life and in the world of business. And we're going to get into a lot of those details with him. In addition to a book that he just wrote called Blind Ambition, there'll be a link to that in the show notes or a link from the website. It's a tremendous book and a pretty fast read. Very interesting. So I want to talk to Chad about some of the details of that book, about his life, and some of the areas where his story and my story do overlap in the realm of the vision loss field. So, hey, Chad, thanks for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast. My pleasure, John. Glad to be here. I am uh, glad for you to be here, too, because I'm interested in the Chatty Foster version of blind. Uh, You mentioned that in your book about (laughs) going working somewhere, and they weren't familiar with the Chad E. Foster version of blind. So I want to get into that and know much more about that. But to probably get a better sense of that, I want to talk about your your journey with uh, retinitis pigmentosa. When did that start for you? When did you realize that that was happening? If Can you go back in the member ranks and kind of walk through that journey? Yeah, you know, at about, I'm told, this is before I can re- really remember a lot of things. At three and a half years old, my parents noticed that I was having problems in dimly lit rooms. And so they, they talked to a couple of doctors and doctors recommended that they get me checked out. So they took me at the time I was living in Knoxville. We were living in Knoxville. That's where my family's from. And so they took me to Duke University Medical Center over there and had me checked out. And it was there that they discovered, and it, obviously they didn't have the genetic technology that they have nowadays, but they, they were reasonably certain that I had retinitis pigmentosa, RP. And, you know, they, they told my parents and it's hard to really imagine what it was like for them as a parent. You know, I've got RP as the protagonist, so to speak, but from a parenting standpoint, that's got to be a really challenging thing. Just imagine hearing the news that your youngest toddler in the back seat on a six, seven hour drive home someday could very well lose their eyesight and go totally blind. And that had to be a, just a gut-wrenching drive home. And I would much rather deal with it myself than have to deal with it when it comes to one of my children. But that, that was sort of the beginning. And then, you know, as I got older, I have memories of playing and learning the physical limitations of my eyesight, having, again, not very good eyesight at and whether it was dark outside or in dimly lit areas. And oftentimes I would find out the limitations of my eyesight by bouncing off of something. So I was a very <laughs> active little kid. Yeah, you know, I played sports. I, I like to play soccer and football and basketball. And um, in high school, I, I ran and I rode jet skis and motorcycles and drove cars and all that. But when I was younger, I just, you know, I would find out the limitations of my eyesight with an injury. And in fact, I had so many injuries at, at one point. They took me and my parents and questioned us in separate rooms at the hospital and asked me if they were they were beating me. They thought literally, you know, this can't be possible mm, yeah. that somebody's getting hurt this often naturally. But that's just the way that I was learning the limitations of my eyesight. Hmm. So like trial and error sounds like. 
It was. Yeah. The, the funny thing is you don't know what you cannot see when you cannot see it. Yeah, right. So if exactly. you're, you're running down a driveway, this happened to me when I was maybe six or seven years old, I was running down a driveway on my grandparents' farm and it was dusk. It was very close to, to dark and I was running full speed. And what I could not see was there was a water truck parked in the driveway. I could see the water truck, but what I couldn't see was the water pipe hanging off of the back of it. And it hit me right across the forehead, split my head wide oh, open. Geez. And I had to get rushed to the ER yet again. That time, I think we got a, a police escort to get there. But that happened pretty regularly, I'd say, um, as, as bad as it sounds. But it, it, it happened often enough. Like I said, they questioned us as to why we were there so frequently. But it's, it's, a, it's a paradoxical thing. How do you know what you can't see? when you can't see it. And obviously I went through that in a very literal way, but I think all of us experience that in a figurative way in our lives. We all have blind spots in our lives and, uh, you know, through reflection, contemplation, oftentimes those can reveal themselves. But for me, the way that I found it physically was just simply by bumping into it. Yikes. And, um, and all the hospital and stitches and doctor's visits to, uh, to show for that too. I've had a lot of things happen. Yeah. Because I never really was, Hey, take it easy. I wasn't the take it easy kind of guy. And so playing sports and, and everything else I've ended up with, I've had broken bones. I broke my leg when I was three, snapped my femur in half, was in a body cast for three months. I've broken several fingers and thumbs and dislocated both shoulders. And uh, just, I mean, I could go on and on and on. I have scar tissue all over the place, but <laughs> It's, it's one of those things, you know, when you go blind, hopefully you've got a high threshold for pain. <laughs> yeah. And, and a good sense of humor about it too, I think, right? Which, which you do. You've got to laugh, right? None of us are, you know, you can't control everything that happens to you, but you've got to control how you respond and how you show up. And, you know, if, if you can't laugh, then uh, I'm not sure what the point of being here is, right? We have to enjoy ourselves. I can't control everything that happens to me, but I can... I can choose how I show up in the circumstances, how I show up in the situation and whether or not I let it get to me or whether or not I can find humor, entertainment, something out of the situation. Because yeah, at the end of this, we're all going to die of something. So we may as well have a good time while we're here, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And the way I found you was uh, because of your book, uh, which will be linked in the show notes um, as well as anywhere else you, f you can find books. It's called uh, Blind Ambition. And you do chronicle a lot of those journeys you just mentioned in the book uh, and, and a lot of those even in greater detail. Um, but you kind of at the beginning of the book, you talk about a word you say is floaters. As we advance you a little more in age here into maybe into your teenage years, you were seeing these floaters. Yeah. Kind of these uh, blind spots or whatever. How, how do you describe those? And, and when did they start to really prevail in your vision, your, your visual field? Yeah, you can think of it almost like you know, a, uh, you know, a a swarm of bees or um, bubbles, maybe, you know, for those who, who have eyesight. It's, it's, it's like everywhere you look, they follow or trail your attention, your focus. And so it started off, you know, I would have just mild floaters. And that was when I was in my early teens. And then the older I got, you know, in college, and I, I did talk about sort of the moment that I couldn't outflank, if you will, the floaters, meaning 
you know, I, I got I was reading a college literature assignment. I'm trying to see the words in the page. These floaters kept getting in my field of view and I couldn't see around these floaters. And so I would look away trying to look the floaters off, you know, and then look back at the words on the page. And I could do that, but I could only get, you know, three or four words at a time. And so that was a really frustrating moment for me. It's a moment that I realized that all of the warnings that the doctors had told us, all those premonitions that everyone had discussed, the fact that someday I could lose my eyesight, all of those things were finally coming to fruition. The, the moment that I had feared for many, many years was, was here. The moment had arrived. Darkness was finally knocking on my door and there was nothing I could do about it. I, I turned on my brightest lamp over my desk to create contrast. Uh, I, I tried, you know, I rested my eyes. Every trick I knew, I tried. But no matter what I did, these tiny little floating bubbles kept getting in the way. And I, I just couldn't see around them. They, they wouldn't stop coming. So that's when I realized that, you know what, this, this was it. This was, uh, this was the end of life as I had known it for the last 21 years. Amazing. So all the techniques and things you'd tried before were uh, no longer successful. Yeah. Came up snake eyes, man. Nothing worked. And it was frustrating. You know, I'm not going to sit here and downplay the situation. It was an emotional moment. You know, there were a lot of tears that night when you spend two and a half hours trying to get a 30 minute assignment done for a college literature class. It's a pretty overwhelming experience when you come to realize that, you know what, I am never going to be able to see another sunset. Yeah. I'm never going to be able to see my future wife. Mm -hmm. I'll never see my future children. Life as I had known it was gone. And in its place was this sort of new, dark, uncertain reality. Yeah. And you probably kind of like me, my, my visual change occurred when I was in college also. Mine was on and off switch for me. It was an overnight kind of deal. And the new, the new normal was, was there. And it's interesting you mentioned the college literature class because that, that was kind of a moment of realization for me too. I, I, had, I had gotten back to school after returning and the first class I took, the, the genius that I am, took, uh, it was English or literature, some sort of literature class. And I can remember the very first day. I mean, it was all British the, lit for me. It was British lit. That's what it was. I can remember sitting in, uh, I mean, like, you know, all the energy it takes to get to class, right? You know, you got to get to campus, get a ride, uh, find the building, find the, the class, find an empty seat. All those types of things have to, have to get, get happen before you get to the actual classroom material. And then as the teacher is reading, going down this list of all these books that we're going to be reading, I'm sitting in there just thinking, how is this going to work? How am I going to read all these books? How, you know, you mentioned that it took 30 minutes to, uh, or an hour and a half, two hours to do a 30 minute assignment. That's what I was thinking too. I didn't learn Braille. I, I don't know Braille today. So I think you're kind of in the same boat. I, I, yeah, I, I, didn't I, lean, learn on, Braille. I lean on technology to, to do that for me. Yeah. And I mean, I was in college. So what's, what's a bigger priority? I'm a 21 year old young man supposed to graduate anytime soon. And so what's a bigger priority, learning how to read Braille or 
finding a way to get gainful employment so that I can actually earn a living. And so for me, gainful employment took priority. I'd love to be able to read Braille, but I had to get paid. I had to get a job. And the way to do that was to learn how to use the one thing that I knew was going to be my portal to the outside world. And that was my computer, the internet, the technology at my disposal. And sure, if I had time to do Braille, it would have been good. But as it, as it happened, I didn't. Yeah, I can certainly relate. I'm a, sort of a technology nerd myself. You know, I've, I think I've also heard you say this. I've, I've said this too, you know, this is a great time to be blind. <laughs> it is a great time. As crazy as that blind. sounds. Well, a lot uh, of people are afraid that we're going to start recruiting, I think is the, the <laughs> problem with that. They're like, hey, wait a minute, you know, are you taking applications or anything? And Yeah, I'm good. I'll keep but, my sight. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's got legs. Now's the time to get in. <laughs> but in, in all seriousness, kidding aside, you know, we have things at our disposal that we didn't have 50 years ago. We can do things online. We have smartphones. Back then we didn't, but we had the internet and we had computers and you know, we had e-commerce starting to lift off and we're, you know, living in a services-based economy where a lot of things can be done. Imagine if we were five or 600 years ago where everything was, was labor intensive in, you know, in a sort of archaic or draconian type of environment, or if we were you know, in a country even that didn't have such access to information or opportunity None of us get to sign up for the circumstances that we're born in. You know, I didn't sign up to have RP. You didn't sign up to go through what you went through. But at the same time, neither one of us signed up to be born in the United States of America, the land of opportunity, and in a period where so much can be done with technology. We didn't ask for that. We didn't ask to have those benefits come our way, just like we didn't ask to have these challenges come our way with our eyesight. So when we think about the basket of circumstances that each of us face. I think we have to be just as mindful of the things that are in our favor that we didn't control as the things that are working against us that are outside of our control. Yeah, absolutely. Something else that you had in your control, which, which I did too to be lucky enough to have in my basket was uh, the, the family structure that I had and my, my parents and, and my family were really critical in my development or redevelopment um, into my life 2.0. And yeah. I know yours were the same way, instilling the uh, fortitude, I guess, from an early age. But I mean, mm-hmm. even your mom, um, sounds like she um, she got a degree as well, right? <laughs> Along with you? She should have. Yeah. yeah. She, I'm still, I'm still going to lobby them to give her the honorary degree. They did give her an honorary accomplished alumni award along with me when the University of Tennessee gave that to me because, you know, she did read all of my business books to audio for me because back then the internet was so early, you know, we didn't have electronic books back then. Everything no, was still no, didn't. I, hard I went through copy. the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a, it was a real challenge. So how was I going to actually read my book? So she heroically and selflessly read every single one of my business books to audio for me to tape And when someone goes and moves beyond themselves like that for you, sacrifices like that, you know, there were days, John, when she read, my dad would go to work and she'd be reading, he'd come home, she'd still be sitting there reading, her voice would be down to a rasp. She read my books, I would speculate, more carefully than a lot of my classmates. So how could I let her down? by not giving 100%. And so when someone really moves beyond themselves like that for you, it inspires you to take action. And it inspired me to take action. Turned out 
you know what? I was a better blind student than I was sighted student. I ended up, I made straight A's from that point forward after relearning how to learn. I made the dean's list and went on to work for a top consulting firm. So maybe I should have gone blind sooner. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I can kind of relate to that too uh, with, with my vision change. I definitely was a far better student uh, afterward than I was before. I think there's also uh, just in addition to maybe understanding a new way of learning, I think that there's some forced maturity and forced, um, I don't know how else to describe it, but just kind of focus and effort. Yeah. And, you know, you're in college, not that you're just there to party all the time, but, you know, for me, I decided that, uh, okay, we gotta, we gotta get this together and change a lot of the ways and a lot of things that I'm doing. So we might as well start paying a lot more attention in school and, and understanding the, really the best way for me to learn. And yeah, I'm my grades be here for a while. So I'm, I'm may as well get a degree, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I'd like to walk away with something, yeah. um, other than, than a bunch of money spent here, but the, yeah. uh, I, it really was a different focus for me. And, you know, before my illness and, and life change, um, I was taking, you know, like 12 hours a semester and mm-hmm. doing pretty good. But after I had some time off to adjust and adapt to everything, but at, towards the end, I'm taking 18 hours and doing better than I was doing when I was taking 12 hours. Yeah. And with everything I had to do, get all these things recorded, like you said, um, I was far enough away from my family that I, I didn't have that at my disposal, uh, for that type of stuff. But we did have the Texas commission for the blind had a service where I could, uh, find people that would, could read things for me, um, and, and compensate them for their time. So, I mean, those kind of things were critical. I didn't know any of that stuff existed. Uh, it was all there, uh, but I didn't know any of it existed before I needed it. And that was a, that was shocking to me too that that the level of support that I received from the university and and things it was really pretty tremendous. Yeah, I was also kind of learning on the fly too, and a lot of it was because I think I just I tried to ignore the reality confronting me. I tried to pretend like I could see okay. I tried to you know act as if everything was going to be fine. Like I could, uh, maybe I would be the outlier. You know, something happened to me when I was 14 years old, I was taken to one of the top retinal specialists in the Southeast. And he was talking to my mom and I, and we were telling him what I did, the sports I was in, how active I was. And, and he remarks that maybe it's possible that I don't have RP because I'm doing so many things that kids with RP are not able to do. It was, he was really blown away. And I remember that day still, my mom and I left that meeting, that appointment, and she's in tears, you know, and I didn't really get the gravity of what he was saying at the time. Obviously she did, but essentially what he was saying was, you know, maybe he has something less severe. And, and I kind of let that delusional or magical thinking persist for a number of years and just thought maybe it you know, wouldn't happen to me. And, and until it did happen to me, I, you know, I do have RP and it did catch up with me. And at 21 years old, the reality of the situation came crashing down. And that's when, you know, I realized that I was at in no way prepared at all 
for the situation. You know, when I went to get my first guide dog, and I'm sure we'll get to that here in a minute, I wasn't even aware of what technology was available. I didn't, I hadn't even heard of any of it. And it just shows you how ill-prepared I was and how many, how many um, tools that I was not aware of and, and things that I hadn't done to put myself in the best possible position. I would, Cause I was just, you know, I, I tried to ignore what my eyes were telling me, the, the clear and present reality that my eyesight was fading fast and soon I wouldn't be able to see anything. And I, I guess it's hard for all of us to confront that reality. But at the end of the day, you know, we have to confront the realities in front of us, no matter how grave they are. Yeah, there's a certain level of denial or I mean, I guess you'd call denial or just all the all the things that you're willing to look past or overlook or downplay and all that stuff. Uh, to a certain degree, it happens to this day for me, um, but it was extremely prevalent you know, way back in those days. And, uh, I've really come a long way with, with getting around that. And, and for me, I call myself ambiguously blind, which is the name of the podcast, because you, you may not know that I have a, an impairment. Uh, it's a significant impairment and, but, but we could, we could be interacting in person, uh, or through a, you know, a zoom call or on the phone or whatever. And you have no idea. And sometimes it doesn't matter and doesn't need to be known, but there are times where it is, and that's where sometimes it can be kind of awkward, <laughs> some awkward uh, ex- exchanges or experiences. So, Oh, I've had those. I just try to get out in front of it as much as I can. But there are situations that you're in where, you know, it just doesn't matter. This is an, a two-minute interaction that I'll have with this person and never see them again. And I don't yeah. have time to give them my, my blind story Life and, and story. My, yeah. my, my limitations and what I should and shouldn't be doing because this is all over. Um, and that's kind of where I wanted to do with the podcast was just kind of a way to, to elaborate on those things that I deal uh, with, with people and talk to other people, um, like you and, and you probably could, could sense some ambiguity in your vision in those teenage years though, where, Oh, look, I, I got a funny story along those lines. I remember I was out, I might've been you know, 21 at this point, um, maybe 22. I didn't have my dog and I was out at a nightclub and I guess you look at me, right, and you can't tell that I'm blind. And I would go out with my friends and couldn't see it all in the nightclub, right? Could, all I could see is the lights flashing in the nightclub. And I'm talking to a girl there. She comes up and she talks to me, and we're just chit-chatting there. And I tell her that I can't see, and she's like, oh, okay, we're having a conversation. And then all of a sudden, like, a strobe light flashes, and it gets my attention. And I turn to look at the strobe light. And she jerks back and says, you liar, and smacks me across the face. Mm, yeah. And the only thing I can deduct, because she walked off after that. Of course, I couldn't see to go talk to her after the fact. Mm-hmm. The only thing I can I can figure out is that maybe another, another girl was passing by, and she thought I was checking the girl out when the strobe light flashed, when I was turning to look at the one thing I could see, which was the light. Mm-hmm. And so... She thought that I was lying. Like, who really goes and lies about not being able to see? I don't know if there are people out there. I'd like to meet some of those people. <laughs> that takes like a that's a new level of uh, I don't know of uh, dishonesty. I guess yeah. lying about not being able to see. But I thought it was uh, it was one of those funny stories. You don't really happen all you don't you don't hear about happening all the time. Where you know you you do get mistaken because you you look like you can see and and maybe I did too. And maybe I still do. I don't know. I, I wear sunglasses now just to keep 
the glare of the light down. But even now I have people come up to me and, you know, one lady, one time she comes up and she asked me who, uh, what, what, what I'm training the dog for. And I told her, you know, the dog's trained, he's a service dog. And then I'm sitting there and, she, and she's pauses for a minute. And she's like, well, what's the service, Chad? I said, well, you know, I'm blind. He guides me. And after a couple of seconds, she pauses and she goes, yeah, but you don't look blind. Mm, yeah, that's a good one. And this time I, I couldn't resist. So I said, oh, thank you. And you don't look rude. You know? <laughs> I never so, would expected that. Yeah, you just, I mean, sometimes you have to have compassion for people who let their eyesight impair their judgment. You know what I mean? Yeah, Things yeah. aren't always what they seem. Yeah, that's for sure. And uh, actually, that's probably the best way to say it. Things are not always what they seem. Yeah, it happens, man. Blindness, is, obviously, is across a continuum. Not everybody, you know, has uh, the same sort of look and feel. Not everybody experiences it the same way, you know. So it's, uh, and, you know, look, you and me are probably, we're one of the few people who can say that, you know what, I can kind of understand that because I had no clue about any of this until I went blind myself. So we've actually lived a majority, majority is not the right word. Um, at least it is now, but maybe not for, for a long time, substantial, a, a substantial number of years in two different social groups. So we've lived in the sort of the, the mainstream majority where we didn't know what it was like when you go blind. And so we were ignorant, uninformed. And then we've also lived on the other side of that since losing our eyesight. And now a lot of the, what we would consider dumb questions that we get, I'd say both of us would probably have had some of those same questions ourselves. I would have asked the same questions. Better. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that allows us to relate with people and empathize with people in a way that isn't always possible because we know what it's like to be uninformed or misinformed. And now obviously we know what it's like to walk a mile in these shoes that we're in not being able to see. So in my opinion, that's a big advantage because it allows us to meet people in our lives where they are, as opposed to where we assume they should be. Yeah. And all the social implications of that take, take a lot, at least for me, it took a long time to evolve through. And like, you're talking about meeting somebody in a bar uh, that's happened to me, you know, maybe not that exact thing, but there's, there's, those kind of weird conversations you feel like you got to have with somebody before you get to know them too well. And then dating and, and handshakes. I mean, how many handshakes do you think you've missed? And you didn't even, you know, you don't know you missed them, especially if, if somebody doesn't say, Hey, shaking your hand, you know? So yeah. there's just so many awkward things that happen. That well, I think, I think COVID's helped that out a lot now. Yeah. Right? Not yeah. a lot of people want to shake hands. We're not doing a lot of, <laughs> a lot of handshaking, but, but high it's, fives it's, and fist bumps. It's fist and, bumping. Yeah. yeah. Now you just, you throw the fist out and look, if you want to fist bump, you hit it. Otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I generally try to be uh, offensive on the offense there when I'm trying to do those types of things uh, in yeah. an effort to not miss them. I'm usually yeah. the first one to extend my hand up to bump well, or and shake that's, or whatever. Look, I'll tell you what, what really helped me a bunch with that, because I haven't dealt with that in a long time now. Um, what has helped me a lot, and this was in college that I dealt with this, but when I went to go get my first guide dog, you know, for years, I was trying to pretend like I could see okay. I was trying to use what remaining bit of vision I had left. I was trying essentially, John, to act like I was somebody who I was not. And that's a really hard thing to do. And you you mentioned this in our, our, our pre-chat, but 
I really do believe it's a lot easier to be totally blind than it is to be half-sighted. Living up to those expectations of someone who has perfect eyesight when you don't. Being able to see all of the cues and all of the you know situation when you can't. That's really hard to do. And after I got my first guide dog, I came back to the University of Tennessee where I did my undergrad. And all of a sudden, I was walking around with a really handsome, intelligent German shepherd that not only helped me get around, but he also was a symbol to everyone that I had an eyesight problem. And all of a sudden, I went from pretending that I could see okay when I couldn't, having to worry about trying to live up to a standard that someone who's going blind could never live up to, to all of a sudden, I could just be me. I didn't have to worry about being somebody I was not. I could just be me, even with you know, this imperfect eyesight that I was dealing with. And I went from a point where I was, quite frankly, you know, trying to love myself despite my imperfection. But I got to a point to where I started loving myself because of my imperfection, because I could own my situation. I didn't have to worry about those social moments that you're talking about where people are like, wait, what's wrong with this guy? Is he is he drunk? Is he high? What's going on? They didn't know that I couldn't see. But now all of a sudden with a guide dog, everybody can look down and see the dog and see the harness and they see my shades and they're like, okay, this guy's got an eyesight problem. Now all of those things are so much easier because I don't have to worry about any of that stuff that I can't control. I can own my situation and I can own my space and I can be authentically, unapologetically, authentically who I am and not really have to worry about what other people think about it. Yeah, you mentioned that um, it, in your book about uh, maybe being easier to be totally blind than partially sighted, and I can't tell you how many times I've I've considered that, um, just just thought about that because there's lots of occasions where the uh, expectation for me to do whatever it is I'm doing or not doing would would be totally the the script would probably be flipped around and there'd be a lot more understanding um, by by people that I'm. I'm working with or socializing with that, that just would make things a lot easier. Um, I do cherish every little square centimeter or inch of vision that I have and do everything to protect what I have. But there are times, you know, like where I'll be doing something. Um, well, I guess kind of an example of that is in, in with technology. Um, I do use a screen magnifier. I use zoom text, you know, you're familiar mm -hmm. with jaws, obviously <laughs> Actually, you're, yeah. you're more, more than familiar with jaws. Uh, it's made by the same group and it's, it's, it's jaws. It's a screen reader plus magnifier. And there's so for so long, I, I cling to the magnification, um, because it's what I've always known, you know, seeing, um, mm -hmm. but then we get into the world of the smartphone and I get an iPhone and we've got the uh, voiceover. That's the, one of the areas where I just gave up. I was like, I'm not even going to try to see the screen. I'm not going to zoom in. I can, and I can strain my eyes and I can, spend a half an hour trying to read a three sentence text message or something. Um, but no, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm doing audio now. And that's kind of where it is in, in, in that case, easier for me to, to use the technology as if, if I can't see it than to try to make it work, kind of duct tape everything together so I can fool myself into thinking I can see, you know, equal or better than what I really think I should be seeing. So uh, mm -hmm. I've thought about that 
quite a bit. And I was, I was happy to hear you bring that up because I also feel like people could be offended or think I'm, you know, being rude or something or, or gosh, you should be grateful for the vision you have. And again, I certainly am, but it, it's something that I have g- given considerable thought to. Well, we should all be grateful for everything we have, whether it's vision, whether it's the fact that we woke up today on the right side of the dirt, whether it's the fact that we've made it through COVID to this point, whether or not, you know, our loved ones are, are safe and healthy. There are a lot of things that all of us take for granted each and every day, myself included. But I, I do really I reflect and want to give airtime to the fact that when I just when I stopped worrying about trying to act like I could see okay and just embraced my reality and owned the fact that I could not see well, that I needed a guide dog to guide me around. It was like this huge weight was lifted off my shoulders. I wasn't forced to try and pretend or act or fulfill some sort of social obligation to act in a way that was the way that everybody else acted when they could see, like the handshakes, like the little gestures that you get in crowds. And I didn't all, have all to worry about- All the visual cues, yeah. Yeah, I didn't have to worry about any of that. All of a sudden, everybody could look over and very quickly surmise that, you know what? This guy's got an eyesight problem. Let's give him a hand. And all of a sudden, I went from being the guy who people assumed was, you know, either drunk or not paying attention or what rude uncoordinated yeah. or whatever to, Oh, he's got an eyesight problem. Let's help him out. And so everybody started being extraordinarily nice to me after that. And yeah, like I said, I had a great ambassador too. I had miles, my first guide dog from leader dogs, who was my, my ambassador, my representative to that world. And who doesn't want to come up and, you know, talk to somebody who's got one of the, the coolest dogs on the planet. And so one of the, one of the trainers when I was, working at the school told me, they're like, this is your first dog. Your life's about to change. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, just trust me. Your social life is about to change. It's getting ready to get really good. And yeah, I was single. I was in college. And I think for two or three years, I didn't buy my own drinks when I went out. People would just, you know, they, the, the dog, they wanted to, my friends wanted to change his name from Miles to Magnet because he was a great conversation piece. And um, it's just incredible how much the conversation and the energy in the conversation shifted when I stopped trying to pretend that I could see okay. I embraced my reality. I got some help. I surrounded myself with, you know, in this case, a dog that could help me navigate that. But then it changed my energy and the way that I showed up in those situations and the way that people received me. Okay. And let's get, let's talk a little bit more about Miles in depth. That was a big experience in your life. Um, meeting Miles and, and getting your first guide dog? It was a big experience. You know, he he literally took me from kind of the depths of despair to the boardroom. Um, and a lot of it had to do with what I, what I was talking about before, you know, the way that I could show up in a situation. Um, but, you know, not having to worry about can I get from point A to point B? Because now I had this incredibly intelligent guide dog who could take me wherever I needed to go. I didn't have to worry about how people would, would view me, you know, not being able to see. I didn't have to worry about trying to hide it. You know, you can hide a lot of things 
when you're walking around. But look, when you're walking into a conference room with a 110 pound German Shepherd, you're not hiding that. You know what I mean? It's no, you're not. Pretty obvious. He's right, right there. there. Yeah, yeah, front and center. So you have to sort of you have to sort of own that. And that was, you know, even though even with that, it did take some time for me to get comfortable with that. And I, I talk about this a lot, you know, and, and I think the reason that I'm successful and we've not really gotten into the business stuff yet, but we'll, we'll get to that here shortly. But the reason that I've been as successful as I have, despite my circumstances, I believe is my entire life has been an experiment of living outside of my comfort zone. And so what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, growing up, learning that I could go blind was uncomfortable. Bouncing off of things and going to the hospital was uncomfortable. Getting my first guide dog. You know, when I returned to the University of Tennessee, going to university classes with a guide dog, a big German shepherd, was socially uncomfortable at first. And then going to job interviews and then, you know, eventually traveling domestically for my job, new airports, new client sites, new cities, and then eventually traveling internationally by myself to Europe and to Southeast Asia and other parts of Asia and doing all of that, not being able to speak the language, not being able to see, not being accompanied by anyone, just me and my trusty guide dog. All of those things were outside of my comfort zone. But you know what I noticed, John, is that every time I moved just slightly outside of my comfort zone, that comfort zone began to expand. And I, I started to crave broader and broader experiences that could help me cultivate that feeling of discomfort. Now, I think that, you know, I really enjoy getting comfortable with discomfort. In fact, I've, I've gotten so good at it, uh, so comfortable with discomfort that I've started skiing downhill. And I'm sure we'll, we'll get to this here in a little bit, but I, I enjoy downhill skiing. And at first, when I first tried that at 38 years old, you know, it wasn't the most comfortable thing, putting on a set of skis and hurtling myself down a mountain. But now I've, I've gotten to the point to where, you know, I even ski, I ski regularly black and even double black diamonds, not being able to see. And I think the thing that I love so much about skiing is that it, it allows me to constantly get out of my comfort zone and challenge myself because I really believe for all of us, if we're never getting outside of our comfort zones, then we're not growing. Our life begins outside of our comfort zone. So if if you're never getting outside of your comfort zone, listeners or John or any of us, then you're never going to experience growth. That's where growth happens. If you are comfortable, chances are you're also complacent. And I think complacency is sort of the enemy of progress. And so I think my situation has sort of forced me to get comfortable with discomfort. And, and now I, I look for new and adventurous ways to keep pushing that envelope. But Miles was a big part of that. Miles helped me on that journey. And, um, you know, there was a, some things that happened. I know we're, we're, we're sort of running out of time here, but there were some things that happened when I got Miles at Leader Dogs beyond what I've talked about right now that really changed my life forever. It was, for me, a transformational experience. My experience in Rochester Hills, Michigan, when I rolled into Rochester Hills at Leader Dogs for the Blind, I rolled in with the attitude of a victim. 
I had the mindset of a victim. I was victimized by RP. I was victimized by my blindness. And I had a terrible, terrible attitude. But I had a set of experiences there that almost overnight, certainly within 26 days, transformed the way that I looked at my situation and my life forever. And from that moment forward, doors started to open for me. People started to help me because of this, this newfound appreciation that I have. And I'll, I'll talk more about that next time when we can come together and chat. But it literally put me on the pathway that I'm on today, which obviously I went from that moment to you know finishing college. And, and since then, I've gone on to work in the corporate world and had some success in the corporate world, ended up um, you know, being the first blind executive to go to Harvard Business School's leadership program that I went to, went a bunch of contracts for the company that I was at. And you know, build some software, uh, as you talked about JAWS earlier, writing some code for so- for JAWS that uh, that Oracle didn't think could be done. So I've, I've been very fortunate to have some professional success in my life. But I think the foundation of all of that was laid back when I was at Leader Dogs for the Blind. I'd love to go into more detail. Um, in that. Yeah, we will do that. The, the book does go into a lot of detail about those experiences, too. And it, it really is a fascinating read. And uh, we'll talk about the skiing and the business stuff and, and leader dogs. And one other uh, story that I, I can directly relate to is uh, the, the women in her life, uh, the strong women in her life. And um, I believe, if I have this correct, your wife uh, drove herself to the hospital in labor. Did she not? She did. Yeah, my wife did too. So <laughs> really, yeah, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get it. We'll get into some of those details. Talk about and, tough women. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I mean, it's one thing to go into labor and to produce another human that in, a, in and of itself, um, puts us to shame, but to do that and be driving a driving car, the car and, with, with me in the passenger seat, telling her everything's going to be okay. And, and yeah. <laughs> it was yeah, a wild and, scene. It was a wild scene. So. Yeah, I can absolutely relate to that. Gives me a newfound, gave me a newfound appreciation for, just how strong, um, in, in particular, my wife, women in general, but I was, I was blown away. The, the amount of poise and composure and toughness that it took to do that was really impressive. Tremendous. Well, to be continued. We'll talk to you again soon, Chad. Look forward to it. Thanks, John. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe and connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.